On this episode of AvTalk, we take an in-depth look at Southwest Flight 1380, including some of the media coverage after the accident. And we talk to John Ostrauer about the new emergency airworthiness directive requiring inspections of the CFM 567B engine. We also see how engine issues are affecting the 787-9, and we try to best Airbus in a rebranding of the C-Series. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here once again with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, you thought you could get rid of me. I, well, I really tried. You tried, but I actually listened to the episode. You made it back from Germany. Yeah. This is a first. It took 29 episodes to get you to listen to the episodes. I'm impressed and, and I'm proud of you. And I think you're you're doing a great job. I had to hear if it was any good without me and it was pretty okay. <laughs> pretty okay is really what we aim for here. Yeah. We, we strive for pretty okay around here. That's, and it takes us a long time to get there. But you made it back from Germany. I'm back. Um, I flew uh, Virgin Atlantic back. It was, uh, it was fun. We heard from you in Germany. Was there anything after we talked to you that was worth mentioning? We we heard about uh, sleeping in cargo compartments and warm cookies and chilled champagne and a little bit about some standing seats that will hopefully never again see the light of day. Was there anything else? Nah, that, that's the bulk of it. But the stupid standing seats have been in the in the news all over in the last week. And let me just emphatically say, you will not be sitting on those seats now or ever in the near future. They are not happening. Stop writing about it. It's not a thing. Thank you. <laughs> All right. A, a public service announcement from Jason Rabin. The more you know. They, we'll have to get a gift. I mean, the for damn thing is, is trending number two on the homepage of Reddit right now. It's ridiculous, but. I feel like that happens every time somebody comes up with something ridiculous for an airplane. Yeah, it happened 10 years ago, the last time they trotted that thing out in front of the public and look where we are now. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Let's talk about the major event in aviation in the past two weeks since since we last, last had a, a show up is the Southwest Flight 1380 departing New York and on its way to Dallas experienced an uncontained engine failure near eastern Pennsylvania and diverted to Philadelphia. Tragically, the failure of the engine shed debris and punctured the fuselage and and a woman was killed, which makes it the, the first fatal to a, a passenger aviation accident since 2009 in the United in the States. In the U.S., yeah. In, in the U.S., yeah, not Overall. Yeah, there's um, a few caveats, but it was a very, very long streak of, of safe flying in the US and really everywhere else in the world for a good stretch too. But this one this one was particularly sad because it, it was just such a freak accident that you would never have thought could happen. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a real shock. And, and I know that listening to the air traffic control audio, you can hear the, you know, kind of the, the calm, but there's like a, a shock there. There's a part of the engine missing or the part of the plane part missing. Of the plane and, is missing. And yeah, is missing the and not the engine. And so it was, you know, rather, I, I'm going to call it shocking to listen to that and to see the photos afterwards. I mean, when you uh, see the media reports at first that a window was knocked out and a passenger was sucked out or whatever, you think that has to be nonsense. That just simply can't happen. And it very nearly did happen. Yeah. And so there, there's been a lot of discussion about not only 
the actual incident that occurred in the engine. And we're actually going to have John Ostrauer join us at a bit to talk about the the specifics of the CFM 56 engine, the what actually occurred in there and the airworthiness directive that has since been issued to to investigate that and mitigate the potential for for future reoccurrence. So we'll talk to him in a little bit. But I mean, there's also been a lot about what happened inside the cabin. And I feel like a lot of this incident has kind of opened the door for a lot of things where people who are very, very unfamiliar with aviation-specific things have jumped in because there was photographs and video from inside the cabin. Specifically, I'm talking about the oxygen mask debate that has kind of come up and how you know people are now discussing the shape of the oxygen mask and, and things like that. And Jason, I don't know where you fall in on this, but I'm kind of of the opinion that you know, I feel like that's a tangential discussion that I don't really feel is necessary right now, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does make sense to me. No matter what the safety briefing is, no matter what you tell people, they're always going to do whatever the hell they want to do. They can pay attention. They cannot pay attention. They can read the instructions or not. When it comes down to it, if the device you're using isn't intuitive, it's not going to be used right. And basically, it's just a little cylindrical uh, round thing that you put on your face and it just simply doesn't look like it should go over your nose. So I've read a few pieces about this since the incident and if they want to make it dead simple, it should be shaped like it goes over your nose. And it's to me, it's that simple. Well, I feel like it's not that simple because what we're talking about is, is something that's designed to also be used in complete darkness when people don't know which way is up. So the design of it becomes circular so that it doesn't matter which way you put it on. The silicone wraps to your face. Yeah. Well, like I said, it, it's human behavior. They're going to do whatever they want. They're going to panic. They're not going to listen to the briefing. Unless you engineer around it, there's, there's really nothing you can do to get a person to properly use something that they've never in their life used before and never thought and they were going to likely use. never ever use again. I mean, yeah. So I, I think that's one thing. But the other thing is that nobody was treated for hypoxia to my knowledge. So it obviously worked. Right. If they're I mean, breathing through their mouth, it's going to work. That or the aircraft descended quickly enough where they never needed them in the first place. Well, I mean, there's also that part is, you know, they initiated the emergency descent very quickly and then got down below, you know, the level where the usable oxygen becomes or increases. So you're you're not as worried about hypoxia as you were. But I mean, I think that's become one of the things. And then there was also perhaps the worst piece of journalism to come out of this particular accident was I, I think it was a marketplace article about how can you tell how old your plane is? Ugh. Let's just set the record straight on that now, not that it needs to be. It does not matter how old your aircraft is pretty much ever unless you're flying like a rickety DC-3 in the jungle. And even then it doesn't matter. The age of the aircraft nearly never matters when it comes to safety. Yeah, it was one of those things that I read the article and I kept waiting for the the kind of like the question was asked so that the rumor could be dispelled. But it wasn't. There was no. actual like buy-in to that question. And and I'm sitting here thinking about how many planes I've been on that are really old and I've flown them because they are really old. I go out of my <laughs> way for old planes exactly. these days. They're more comfortable. 
Well, there's that too, but but not even that. I mean, I'm talking about like really old stuff and like, you know, jumping in a chance to fly in a DC-3 because I know that that's going to be well-maintained. Right. I, I mean, a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, I went out to Hamburg, Germany for to fly Lufthansa's JU-52 and that thing is ancient and was later grounded due to metal fatigue, which I didn't know at the time, but at the time it was very safe. <laughs> But I mean, that's the thing. When those issues are discovered, the airplane stops flying. But but age doesn't matter. And and it's also the fact that you can replace engines on an aircraft. Right. You could have a, what, a 20-year-old aircraft with a, a brand new day-old engine? I, exactly. And so I thought that piece was very, very ignorant, but also a bit disingenuous because it felt like they were not writing to say, you know, Aircraft age isn't really a factor. It's you know just something that exists. No, and they were are, just posing the question: Does it is yeah. it safe? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> it was very, very upsetting to read because I, I felt there was there was no kind of curiosity on the part of the writer to figure out if that was an actual question that one should be asking. All I'm going to say is I feel much safer on a 35 year old Delta seven five seven than I do on a zero-year-old aircraft in other parts of the world. I, I think that's a, a fair statement. So, not the whole world, but there are places where maintenance just isn't up to the standards of the rest of the world. And we know here, at least in, in first world countries like the US, everything is hopefully really scrutinized and, and standardized to the point where it doesn't matter if the aircraft is 30 plus years old. So let's talk about what actually happened on 1380 so that we can then bring John in to talk about what is happening to make sure it doesn't happen again. They were in flight passing through about 32,000 feet and- Out of LaGuardia. Out of LaGuardia on their way to Dallas. And one of the fan blades, so the fan that's at the front of the engine, one of the fan blades there basically cracked off at the base- and when you've got something spinning as fast as a jet engine, and that sheds a lot of energy. And so it was, we can talk about, you know, the kind of like testing and things like that with John, what'll happen to make sure that those don't have any, you know, cracks in or anything like that. But one of the fan blades had a crack in it. And the NTSB said that the crack was not visible to a, a visual inspection. So it wasn't something that, you know, it's like, oh, look, there's a crack, um, but it, it would require specialized inspection. So it cracked and it caused significant damage to the engine and which then shed uh, debris into the fuselage, the wing and, and broke the window. None of which is supposed to happen. Right. So that's what happened to the engine. They landed the plane safely. And this was another thing that, that has bugged me about this whole discussion, the talk of the pilot. Pilots. But the talk has been pilot. And I, I feel like there's always this misunderstanding. And I don't know how far this goes back in, in kind of popular media, but there's always a discussion of the pilot and the co-pilot. And I feel like because there's such ignorance about how a flight crew actually operates and what the job of the flight crew is versus the, the pilot flying, the pilot not flying, and, and all of the work that they're doing, I find it always very difficult to separate out you know, the flight, you know, one pilot from the other, unless we're talking about, you know, the pilot has become incapacitated. And so the other, you know, right. those, those kind of stories. But I feel like 
the crew resource management and the teamwork that the flight crew did to get the plane safely on the ground as quickly as they did was, I mean, you know, we're talking about heroes and things like that. I'm willing to go out and say that they are. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because, because after seeing photos on the ground and what the actual damage was and, the, you know, but they don't know that. I mean, the first report was an engine fire. And then, you know, after kind of assessing the situation, getting a little bit more information from the cabin crew, said, well, the plane's not on fire, but there's a piece missing. And a hole in the fuselage. Right. And so dealing with all of that, quickly donning an oxygen mask, coordinating with air traffic control, getting the plane safely on the ground. And it, it wasn't just dealing with an engine out. The NTSB said there was a 40-something degree uncommanded bank when that engine went out. That's significant. Yeah, because basically the, the right engine's operating just fine. The left engine all of a sudden stops operating and becomes this huge piece of draggy material. And so, yeah, 41.3 degrees uncommanded left bank. So, I mean, the maximum normal turn that you're ever going to experience in aircraft is what, 20 to 25 degrees? 20-something, yeah. So, that's a hell of a bank. Yeah. So, to say they just basically ran checklists or whatever is ridiculous. And so, I think that that I'm willing to go out and say, you know, heroes all around, a fantastic job by the air crew. And they landed safely in Philadelphia. Um, and, And one of the things that they did was that they took an extended final and extended final approach and landed, they said, flaps five. And I think it was the, the normal flaps configuration. Is f- and hopefully there's a 737 pilot out here who can email us at podcast at fr24.com if I am wrong, that it's flaps 35 or flaps 40. So they landed quickly, you know, because they didn't know if the airplane was going to be controllable with an increased amount of flaps. I mean, so just an amazing amount of work, the the workload that goes into this. All that said, this is the thing that flight crews train for. And hopefully never And hopefully use, never have to use. This is why they get paid. This is why they get paid the big bucks is to control unplanned incidents of this nature. So we're going to take a very short break and bring in John Ostrauer and talk about the aftermath of this as far as what the FAA and other global regulatory agencies are looking at because this engine is on you know thousands of aircraft around the world so it, it's not just a US issue it's 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 a global issue and to see what what CFM the manufacturer is doing what the FAA is mandated that that's kind of spreading out from there and what the airlines are doing to make sure this uh, isn't a problem that, that repeats itself so we'll be back in just a moment with John Astrar And we are back with John Ostrauer, aerospace journalist extraordinaire, who we've asked to come and talk about the after effects of uh, Southwest Flight 1380 and and what's happening at the regulatory level beyond just the accident investigation, but what's going on with the recent Federal Aviation Airworthiness Directive regarding the CFM engines and other issues surrounding that. So, John, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, John. Thanks. Thank you. John, let's start with the very basics because a lot of our audience is not extremely well-versed in the lingo of aviation. So let's start with the very basic question of what is an airworthiness directive? So an airworthiness directive is the process by which the FAA 
goes out and says that airlines and manufacturers need to do something. Specifically, it typically applies to operators of aircraft. So in this particular case, there was an airworthiness directive that was that was floating around and in the rulemaking commentary process, it, you know, prior to last week's accident in Philadelphia and talked about the necessity for repetitive inspections roughly every 15,000 cycles since the last shop visit for, for CFM 56-7B fan blades. The 7B is specifically for the 737NG. Every 737NG since 1997 has had a 7B engine. So it gives you a sense of how large the population of, of CFM 56 engines for the 737 really is in this case. I mean, there are 14,000 of these things out there. But for the sake of uh, the regulatory side of this, the AD effectively establishes what operators are required to do. In this particular case, we saw... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say this is legally required. We're not saying the, the FAA is suggesting something happening here. We're saying this is... you are If you are legally operating in... The FAA is saying it in the United States or, or a US carrier, you are legally ob- obligated to do whatever we are saying to do. This has the force of law. Yes. Okay. How does it apply overseas if, if you're an airline in Central Europe and you'll never get anywhere near even North America? Does this apply to you? So typically what happens in situations like this, you get initial recommendations from the operator also, uh, rather than the manufacturer. So you'll get a service bulletin, which oftentimes covers a lot of uh, the inspection requirements for the entire population because obviously the FAA doesn't have jurisdiction over airlines operating and say – Europe, Latin America, so on and so forth. So effectively, this any regulatory action needs to be replicated by the local regulator. In this particular case, it's EASA, and they they will mirror this for for operators in in Europe and really operators all over the world have you know essentially reciprocal regulatory bodies in many many cases that will then amplify the requirement if it's adopted for local carriers. So this particular airworthiness directive affects the CFM 56 7B engines. And you mentioned a few moments ago that there was a airworthiness directive in the works, and that was following the 2016 incident, which was rather visually similar upon first glance to the recent events in, in Pennsylvania. And so can you talk a little bit about why it took nearly two years for that airworthiness directive to work its way through the regulatory process and the rulemaking process, but this – the emergency airworthiness directive was issued within less than less than two weeks? So the nature of that initial uh, national airworthiness directive, the process by which it was being approved and you know, notice, the notice of proposed rulemaking came out. And there was a back and forth between the manufacturer, the airlines, and so on and so forth about the requirement. It's not that it was being stalled per se. In fact, in, in the case of Southwest, they were actually recommending a, a more aggressive regime, about 3,000 cycle repetitive inspections, which they say actually went significantly farther than initial AD. A lot of the reason that was moving slowly, at least from what I've been able to, to glean, is that the service bulletin that CFM had put out prior to the pub- the publication of the proposed AD was effectively covering it was getting it and by the end of this year actually would have gotten to the heart of covering all the the affected engine population 
And we actually read in a story, I believe, just the last day or so from Bloomberg that the engine that was on flight 1380 actually would not have been covered under the the, the 15,000 hour regime in the original airworthiness directive. So clearly there was a necessity to change the uh, inspection regime, change the aggressiveness of the regulatory action to make sure that this happened very, very, very quickly. And, and the uncomfortable part of all this and the tragic part of all this is in, in large res- respect, the, the FAA and government regulators have earned a reputation for acting with speed and aggressiveness typically only in the wake of an accident rather than in advance of avoiding one because there are all kinds of you know there's there's business politics that get that that are at play here so there were folks who were, who were derisively calling the FAA the tombstone agency because the criticism was that the FAA was only acting as a result of what had what had happened rather than get ahead of this after again you see an incident that is virtually identical and you know, it, that kind of comes back to, you know, the damage pattern of the engine and what the fragments coming off of the engine did to the airframe. And obviously in the case of 1380, the, the cowling and the, and the inlet structure came off, struck the leading edge of the wing and struck the fuselage and ultimately caused the, the, the depressurization of the airplane and tragically the fatality of the, of the woman sitting, sitting in that, in the window seat. So there is this sort of additional catalyst that comes with a tragedy. And unfortunately, you know, the pattern has has repeated itself in that regard. So we now have the Emergency Airworthiness Directive. And I was wondering if you could walk us through. So as Jason and I talked about before the actual event that, that occurred, and so the, the issue was with one of the fan blades. And so I was hoping that you could talk about what the actual AD is specifying airlines and other operators do to make sure that the engines are safe to operate. So the emergency AD, first and foremost, says within 20 days, requiring a one-time ultrasonic inspection on all 24 of the fan blades on a CFM 56 7B engine that have accumulated more than 30,000 flight cycles. So that's a flight cycle is a startup, a takeoff, a landing, and a shutdown. That's considered one flight cycle. So again, you get the, the the highest power stress on the engine. So again, thirty thousand cycles is a lot of cycles. I mean, when when you you know that starts off with hundreds of airplanes that that need to be inspected as a result of that, and in conjunction with that, uh, CFM actually put out its own updated service bulletin, which talks about potentially an inspection regime that's identical as far as the ultrasonic inspection by the end of August for fan blades with 20,000 cycles and inspections for all other fan blades when they reach 20,000 cycles. So it covers the the spread prior to the 30,000 cycle kind of marker that the FAA has put down. On top of that, after the first inspection, then they're telling airlines to repeat the process every 3,000 cycles. So that's about every two years or so. So when we say ultrasonic inspection, I assume we're not talking about walking around with, you know, like the ultrasound machine you see in a hospital. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I claim, I will claim ignorance on the, the precise amount of, of sort of equipment required to examine each, each blade. But it's certainly something that it is a very hands-on process. I do know that. But it can be done in, I understand, about three to five hours 
per airplane roughly? Well, we know it's not a, a visual inspection because the NTSB very clearly and quickly said that the crack in the fan blade was on the inside of the blade. So simply looking at it doesn't do anything. They have to do these uh, pretty lengthy and detailed inspections electronically or like, like you said, however it is, they actually do do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's going to be a time-consuming process just to, to to dig in there from a volume perspective. I mean, there are 14,000 CFM 56.7B engines in operations. I mean, this is quite literally like saying you're, there is a major safety issue with a Honda Accord or a Toyota Camry. I mean, that's the equivalent here that we're talking about as far as, as, far as the ubiquity of this product. Right. And getting all the equal agencies throughout the world, China, Japan, and all these European countries, India, all to be on the same page to make sure these inspections happen to me seems like a very daunting process. And, and the service bulletin is a great way to get ahead of that in a lot of respects, because if you've got that as sort of a the, – the unifying force here is the manufacturer, CFM, and they're able to issue recommendations directly to operators and, and certainly things move at the speed of regulation more often than not. And so it, it just – it allows for a, a kind of a fast lane, so to speak, of, of uh, getting things moving. John, you mentioned the ubiquity of the CFM 56. I mean, it, you know, thousands of engines. So I guess my question is, why have we seen nearly identical, if there are so many engines, why have we seen nearly identical events with just Southwest? I mean, is there something different about their operations or, or is it just the number of planes they have that changes that calculus and kind of puts them in a, in a greater likelihood to experience something like this? I think this is the peril of fleet leadership. This is an airline that not only assumes the responsibility for working the kinks out of a new model. So they launched the 737NG in the 90s, and then they just took the first 737 MAX last summer. And they, you know, their launch customer, launch operator responsibility is finding those problems early on. But the flip side of that, which I think is less discussed, is you also find all of the problems that de- with the airplane that uh, that will develop over the long term use of that airplane. So you get it on the back end too, and so you take that, you take the aggressiveness of the of Southwest operations. I mean, they are flying the hell out of these airplanes. I mean, Southwest known for their fast taxis and and quick turns and. You know, it's more than five flights a day. I mean, you know, there was some, you know, looking at the, at the, the airplane that was involved in 1380, I mean, it was doing at times seven, eight, nine cycles in the, in the six months, oh, six, nine cycles daily leading up to, uh, in time leading up to the, the, um, the accident. So these are airplanes that are, that are pushed really, really hard. It's not to say that, that there's anything, I mean, it, what ultimately requires a certain level of care that, that Southwest and Boeing as kind of a symbiotic relationship have crafted over the years. And a lot of the reasons that the, the, South, the, the, the 737 is as efficient in terms of operations and, and reliable in terms of operations as it is, is because Southwest finds the boundaries and they uh, are able to, you know, effectively say, and it, you know, we have done this, we have shown this, we have demonstrated this by virtue of the law of large numbers, that you've got this tremendous 737 operation that is, again, the largest domestic airline in the United States flying, again, flying the hell out of these 737s and and pushing the boundaries of, of, of you know, their operational capability. And, and you know, look, it's, it's, 
we also saw this on the 300s too. I mean, if you if you recall, there were twin incidents also with skin cracking and in-flight depressurizations on the 300s in the 2000s that required a total rework, um, effectively new skin panels on a huge portion of, of the of the 737 Classic fleet that was flying with Southwest. Again, because they they got to this point in their operations where they were seeing fatigue cracks that Boeing wasn't even expecting. So it really is, you know, again, the, the, the risk and peril of, of being, number one, a single fleet operator. Because, again, you know, if, if one thing happens to one type of airplane and all of a sudden, you know, 500 of those airplanes are affected in your fleet, that's, that presents a, a significant risk to your operations. I mean, again, on top of that, you've also got the, you know, the acknowledged risk of being on the front lines of this. So it's, it really is a, a, a fascinating study in, in not only you know, the capabilities of how you make an airplane reliable over long term, but, but what happens when you just have volumetrically more operations and more data to play with as far as proving what is and isn't reliable uh, when you're flying a 737 around the country? So if we're looking at, you know, operators that are single fleet or that are or single type in their fleet or are, are doing a massive number uh, of aircraft, you know, we're, we're talking about Ryanair, we're talking about EasyJet with, with, with Airbus aircraft, and and we're looking at maybe, well, I mean, Lion Air's got to have, what, a, at least a billion 737s on order right now. So, I mean, is there something specific to, to the way Southwest operates that makes it more likely versus a Ryanair, which has, I mean, not an insignificant number of 737s in their fleet? Mm. Yeah, Ryanair has north of 400. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge, huge fleet. The difference is that it's actually a really young fleet. The key to understanding Ryanair's operations versus Southwest, I mean, Ryanair was posed as, well, it's the Southwest of, of Europe. I mean, granted, there were divergences in the business model around, you know, no frills and that side of things. But fundamentally, it, it was leveraging the same idea. It's like a single fleet, you know, quick turns, rapid operations. So, but Ryanair doesn't hold on to its airplanes as long as Southwest does. I mean, the the number of airplanes that are leased is significantly greater, and they will then either resell uh, those airplanes after eight, twelve years to other operators. And they have a those airplanes have a very long secondary life. And heck, it's not a bad way to to make a dime when you think about the pipeline of reselling a used but well taken care of seven thirty seven to uh, a secondary secondary market operator. So I, I want to switch gears and, and talk about the, the actual incident or, or twin incidents, really, if we're now safely, I think, tying the two together somewhat. And that's the design aspect of the engine itself. I mean, one of the design criteria for an engine is to contain a failure of the engine itself. I, I mean, and when we talk about you know these types of events, we keep talking about an uncontained engine failure because parts of the engine were not contained and they impacted the fuselage, they impacted the wings. And in this case, you know, created a, a tragic incident where a person was killed because of the debris. So is there something being looked at? Is there a redesign or is there just another round of, of revision to look at why were these failures not contained? So it's important to – so it's, it's interesting. I mean calling this an uncontained engine failure, I think it fits the definition. One of the important things when you talk about uncontained engine failure is that whether or not the 
fan blade actually exited the fan casing. And in this particular case, it actually didn't. The fan casing did its job. The regulatory requirement is that if you lose a blade, and there are very, very, very dramatic videos of this, both in full motion and, and unbelievable slow motion on YouTube that you can spend plenty of time pouring over, but that show that that the, the blade, the explosive release of the blade, which is how they test it on the ground, uh, has to be fully contained within the casing and not cause damage to cause the, the cause damage to the aircraft or cause the engine to come off. In this particular case in Southwest, there certainly was a blade failure, but the blade itself was contained. The question then becomes, and this is a secondary requirement, is what happens to the nacelle once that that failure happens? And we see a very similar damage pattern between what happened in August 2016 and what, what happened on 1380. So within that, the nacelle requirement is not that it has to survive a containment. It's a really a question of when the engine is unbalanced like this because it causes tremendous vibrations and shakes shakes like crazy and it and it is a really disgusting piece of you know disgusting destructive force that that happens here. The transfer load effective of of all that vibration cannot cause secondary damage. Effectively, a the nacelle has to be able to survive the aerodynamic changes in the configuration, which is another way of saying if part of the engine blows apart. A rushing 500 mile per hour wind can't rip the nacelle off, rip the front of the nacelle off either. And transferring all the the energy in the engine to the nacelle and the front of front of the engine can't cause damage to the airplane. In this case, and in August of 2016, that happened. The NTSB said explicitly that they found blue paint on the leading edge of the wing and. It is the NTSB told me directly that this is something that they're looking at. The structure of of the nacelle is going to be a, is something that they're going to look closely at in terms of its effect on on the performance of the aircraft, on uh, they're causing the depressurization, causing the damage to, to the leading edge of the wing, and in the case of of the Southwest incident from 2016 also caused significant damage to the fuselage and uh, leading edge of the horizontal stabilizer. So, you know, you, you now seen two nearly identical incidents that caused significant damage to the, to the airplane. You know, that from an operator perspective, if you're operating a large fleet of 737s or, or any size fleet of 737s, that becomes an, an almost more important requirement. You know, once you get past the initial requirement for inspections and, and making sure that, that the blades you have are safe, there's almost certainly going to be a conversation that this that goes on in this industry over the next year or less around the ability for a nacelle to withstand a change in aerodynamic load and change in imbalance and what it does to the to the aircraft if this happens. So the regulatory requirement is fairly explicit about what is and isn't supposed to happen to an engine nacelle. So there are, like I said, there are 14,000 of these out there. Every CFM 56-7B engine there are two on every airplane, and there are two nacelles to go with each of these. So if there are design changes or corrective action required or recommendations made by, by the NTSB, that becomes an expensive, massively, potentially significantly disruptive process of either replacing those or figuring out a way to mitigate the risk on those. I, what that will be is very much yet to be decided, but it, it is absolutely going to be a discussion that's going to take place over, over the next months and years.
And we will certainly continue to follow this very closely. I mean, if nothing else, because the 737 is so, I mean, just a massive part of worldwide fleets. So like you said, if there are changes to the airframe or to the power plant, it has the potential to be quite disruptive. John, I want to thank you so much for talking with us again and kind of giving a lot of context to what we've been seeing in both the aviation press, but also in the general media, which I think often lacks context. So I'm glad you were here to give us some. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's transition gears from one engine issue to another. Another big one. Another big, uh, literally a big engine. Rolls-Royce is having issues with the Trent 1000, which powers the 787-9s. And uh, Jason, you've kind of been a little more involved in this than I have. So I'll let you kind of explain the situation and how it's affecting some airlines. Well, basically, there's, do I call it a defect in in these engines or unexpected maintenance requirements earlier than planned? I won't get into technical details because I'm not totally well-versed in it. But basically, there's something going on with these Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 engines in the 787-9, and it's wreaking havoc with a few airlines' long-haul fleets, specifically British Airways, Air New Zealand, LATAM, and Norwegian have been pretty hit pretty hard because it's been a it's a significant chunk of their fleets. Air New Zealand specifically has been the most impacted. They've had to add fuel stops along the way on their long haul routes because it turns out New Zealand is really quite far away from their destinations, and a lot of these airlines have also had to lease equipment. So Air New Zealand is leasing. Hi-Fly uh, A330s and A340s, which is super unfortunate if you're one of their passengers because those things suck. LATAM has leased Wamos Air A330s. Norwegian is simply Norwegian. They have issues that predate the Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 issues, but this doesn't help. And it's rumored, Ian, that you might like this, that BA might be unretiring a few 747s. Ooh. Really? Really. They've retired a bunch of 747-400s over the past couple of years that are just kind of hanging out in the desert. And it turns out they may reactivate a few of them, just like Delta did when they were ramping down their 747 operations, when one of them got hammered by hail out in China, I think. Yeah, yeah. They were flying through China and just it looked like they somebody had turned the airplane into a golf ball. <laughs> they just retired the damn thing. But in this case, BA is rumored to unretire a few 747s to fill the gap. So it's the industry is adapting. It's they're doing the best they can to to plug these gaps that the 789 is leaving. But if you're booked on Air New Zealand, LATAM, BA, or Norwegian, you might feel the pinch of these grounded aircraft that have been grounded in some cases for months already. Wasn't Virgin Atlantic also affected? Ah, that's right. I forgot about Virgin Atlantic had to reactivate an also retired A340-600. So we forgot about them. So it's it's annoyingly widespread. 
Oh, they've also acquired a few of the ex-Berlin, Air Berlin A330s. Yeah, they put a, a few of those into service now already. So it, I know that the, the A340-600 was supposed to be kind of a aircraft of last resort for it's them, not. but it seems like it's gotten it's a not. lot of use. Yeah, Virgin had told me that it's a spare aircraft. It'll be used when necessary to fill in gaps in the schedule. It also happens to be their sole aircraft without Wi-Fi, which is a thing I track as a part of my day job. But the damn thing's in service every single day at this point, and nearly every single day. So it's very much completely back in the fleet. Well, then another engine issue that I'm sure we will hear more about later as things you know ramp down as far as the inspections and things like that go and, and operations return to normal, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. Shall we talk about a little bit of good news? I like good news. And let's say your favorite airline put the Embraer E190E2 into service just yesterday. I'm not allowed to say the name of the airline because apparently I don't know how to say it. <laughs> We've received a number of emails about your mispronunciation of the airline. We had been saying, I believe we'd been saying, how were we, how were we saying? Wydro. I'm not allowed to say it. Which is incorrect. And I will do my best and, and, and say Vidro. But that's probably also incorrect, uh, but I believe it's closer. But the E190E2 is in service and doing a lovely job flying over some some mountainous terrain and lots of pretty pictures with snow-capped mountains and things like that. So that has happened. I just wanted to try and get you to say the name, but... Nope, not happening. Apparently. You're not going to trick me this time. All right. Other good news, the A350 ULR. Well, <laughs> good news depends on, I guess, how you feel about spending 20 hours on a plane. But the A350 ULR made its first flight this week. will go to Singapore, the second half. Singapore Airlines is the second half of 2018. And that will be the aircraft that allows them to possibly restart Singapore-New York routes. So 20 hours in the air. I don't know. Yeah, I, we'll see. We don't know what the interior is going to be like, if they're going to have economy, premium economy business first. We all, we don't even know what airport it's coming back to. The old A340-500 flight went to Newark while the current A3, A380 service goes to JFK and we don't know if they're going to do Newark or JFK. It's an oddly, oddly contentious thing. We don't know which one they're going to go to, but I want to know. But I, that's a long flight and I don't know. That's my only answer for that one. Yeah. We'll find out when and if they relaunch it, whether or not we we decide to to try and do it. I I think that would be an interesting way to record a podcast. We could do a 20-hour episode of the podcast, just see what happens. I think we should talk to someone from Singapore at some point, see if they want to uh, talk about it. Boeing had their earnings call today, and one of the interesting pieces of information that came out was that Iran Air is – or has deferred their triple seven three hundred ER deliveries until was it two thousand nineteen? Yeah, now? next year at the earliest. So if they ever take them at all, it sounds like. I mean, they want them, but at this point, it seems like they can't have them. Yeah, I don't know, pol- political crap. I don't want to talk about too much, but it's kind of disappointing. They need. Yeah, it. I mean, they're still taking delivery of their their new Airbus aircraft, so it's hopefully. It all works out. I mean, their their fleet plan kind of seemed preposterous anyway. The odds that they actually take a fleet of A380s to me seems ridiculous, but more power to them if they actually do. 
I think, uh, yeah, I don't think we'll see that. At this point, I'm surprised when anybody says anything about the A380 other than Emirates. Well, just today we saw um, the configuration and, and paint jobs for the ANA A380s, which That's I actually, right. I forgot to talk about this. I took a tour of the Airbus Hamburg facility after AIX last week, and we saw pieces of it in the uh, facility actually being bolted together, which is pretty cool. All right, then. So the, uh, things are coming together. If you're ever in Hamburg, take the Airbus tour because they, they walk you on the production line and you're like two inches away from aircraft. It's really cool. That sounds like a nice tour. Yeah, we should have talked about that. Oh, well. We should have. To, well, we just did. Yeah, there you go. So, all right. Shall we discuss another air? Well, this is an airline that is trying to do something but has not quite they're, done they're it. So air close. Belgium. They're so close. Air Belgium is this uh, – Funky little upstart in Belgium, of all places, that's trying to restart services or startup services out of Belgium using X Finair A330 300s, which is whatever. I have many opinions on that. But they were supposed to start service, I think, like next week, and they had to postpone a full month because of two reasons. One, they said, we are not available in the GDS, which is like Sabre and all the places where travel agents book tickets. So it turns out no one could actually book our flights at this point, which is a bit of a problem. You don't want to operate airplanes that don't have people in them. And the second is they never got to the point where they were able to get overflight permits for Russia. And when their routes are uh, Europe down to Asia, you need to go through Russia. So rerouting around it would be extremely expensive. So they've had to postpone service for a full month. So I guess we'll keep an eye on Air Belgium. If there's an Air Belgium left to keep an eye on, well, that I mean that's the other thing. Hopefully they don't you know stop before they even start. Yeah, I usually don't pay too much attention to airline startups because so often it ends up not starting up. But they seem so close at this point. They have the crew, the airplane, livery. Everything. And they, actually, they actually operated – I don't know if they were, were wet leases, but they were operating for was, – was it Air Suriname? Something like that, yeah. Something yeah. that didn't require going over Russia. And they operated right. a, a mock demo flight the other day for their own service. So they're, they're close, but Russia's getting in the way. I feel like we say this a lot. Hopefully, it all works out. Yeah, we'll see. Tune back in. Let's close with a call for some marketing. We think our listeners can do a better job than what Airbus is doing right now. So Airbus has – there was a report today. I think it was Bloomberg came out with it today that said Airbus is going to fold the C-Series into their marketing catalog and possibly rename the C-Series CS100 and CS300 as the Airbus A210 and A230. No. Which I, I feel like we could do better. So we, we can do better. What I would love to have happen is for someone to email us at podcast at fr24.com or uh, send us a note on Twitter at FlightRadar24 or on Facebook, FlightRadar24. Or just shout really loudly. We'll or just you. shout really loudly with something better than the Airbus A210 and A230. Because I, I, I know we can do better than yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's terrible. Airbus. Dear listeners, I know we can do better. Yeah. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. It just – it sounded – the explanation made sense to me. Yeah. I mean you don't want to call it in the A300 series because it's not really in that family of aircraft. But you don't want to leave the C-series branding around I guess. But ugh. you could still do better. 
All right. So hopefully we'll, we'll get a few good ones and I, I don't know what we'll do. We'll send a petition to Airbus or something like that. But but I know we can do better and I would love to hear what we can come up with. Jason and I are going to go think about what we think it should be instead. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening. I am Ian Pechnik here once again, as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And good to be back. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.